0: Hello, and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Now, this obviously means that we're going to be talking about one of the most important moments in the entire of human history, which comes from World War II and leads us into shaping... The entire post-war world. It is an amazing idea for a movie. And basically it surprises me that we kind of haven't had it done before at this level. This allows me to also talk about the career of Christopher Nolan. Basically the most consistent director that I personally like. But I'm going to say that Steven Spielberg is better. Yes, you've got someone like Stanley Kubrick. He's amazing too, but I don't actually love every single one of his movies. Not a fan of Clockwork Orange, I'll just put it out there. Likewise, Eyes Wide Shut, Missed Opportunity, and something like Barry Lyndon? To be admired rather than loved. But I absolutely get that he's a craftsman, so we get to put all of this stuff together. But first, I want to remind you of the previous episode where I talked about Barbie, because You get this idea of, like, counter-programming. So, during the World Cup, when, statistically, loads of men are sitting there watching the TV, well, the women are, again, statistically, less likely to be watching the World Cup. So movie theatres still want to get business what do they do? They put on a bunch of female orientated movies and some of those can end up being very big hits at a time when traditionally it might be a bit quieter in the theatres. It's a clever idea. And so weirdly while because of Covid and all this kind of stuff there's been real problems with Hollywood trying to get their product out and actually film stuff and then hey you know when everything's finally calmed down let's have a writer's strike and for the record I am on the side of the writers and I really hope that various productions learn from the previous writer's strike and don't try and sort of fudge things I'm looking at you quantum of solace terrible Daniel Craig James Bond movie there ruined it seems in part by the actual writer's strike certainly it's a god-awful Bond film. I think you're so blinded by inconsolable rage that you don't care who you hurt. So the thing is, you know, Hollywood's in a fragile state at the moment. We've all got used to seeing stuff at home. There have been several occasions when I've been in the movie theatres over 2023 where people... Behaviour has got worse in cinemas generally, but it's really hidden the deer if you've got a younger audience in 2023... And I actually on one occasion complained, and credit to my local Odeon theatre, I'm going to put it out there, they actually took my complaint seriously and gave me some complimentary tickets. So thank you very much for that. It wasn't for Oppenheimer, for the record. Yeah, because of all this stuff going on, there's a bit of a gloss of movies coming out in 2023. So it is unlikely that the core demographic to go and see Barbie are also the same core demographic waiting to see Oppenheimer, Although, like I said, you know, there's actually quite a lot going on in Barbie, maybe I'll give it a go. But like Barbie, Oppenheimer, new Christopher Nolan movie, is absolutely packed with talent. You've got Killian Murphy, who is the central character, he's Oppenheimer, he's obviously been in a whole bunch of other movies with Christopher Nolan he was the scarecrow in the Batman trilogy and yes he actually appears in all he may be the main bad guy in the first Batman movie Batman Begins but he does have scenes in the other two movies as well he sort of like is part of the key opening section where you start seeing there are vigilante Batmans in the second one and you even see him running a court during the complete anarchy of Bane in the third movie but he's also the key character in Inception, where basically Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to trick Killian Murphy. And then also he plays an important role in Dunkirk as well. He's a British officer. So that's five movies already with Nolan. And now we come to the central star role, first time he's been starring for Nolan in this sixth collaboration together. And do you know what? They aren't the only ones who are working together. Like a lot of directors, once they kind of find the right people, They want to work together with them. Sadly, there is one exception to this. Michael Caine. Now, Michael Caine first started working with Nolan as Alfred the Butler in the first Batman Batman Begins that Nolan did. But since then, he's been in virtually everything. He's even on the radio in Dunkirk. He's even in Tenet. And he's got pretty key roles in the likes of Inception and also Interstellar as well. But... For whatever reasons, I don't know what they are. And Michael Caine said that even though he's turned ninety, he says, I will keep working with Christopher Nolan as long as he asks me. Maybe they just couldn't fit him in somehow, but yes, with regrets, he's not in this one. But oh well I love Michael Caine he's not exactly to be missed because, like I say, we got Killian Murphy, who is just a he's a great actor. I, I might have dunked on Peaky Blinders, in my episode about Peaky Blinders, you can listen to that one if you want to, but there's Matt Damon, there's Emily Blunt, there is Gary Oldman, so there's Casey Affleck, who's, it's worth reminding you, he may not be the biggest name in, in the movie, but he's won an Oscar, So's Gary Oldman, there's Kenneth Branagh, who hasn't actually won an Oscar for acting although he has been nominated but he is actually Oscar winning for his movie Belfast we got Rami Malek another best actor winner we've got Robert Downey Jr we got Florence Pugh who just seems at the moment everything she touches turns to gold this is an amazing cast perhaps only matched by the amazing cast that Barbie managed to get together there is some serious quality most of the top-notch acting community has been busy working on these two movies that have come out on literally the same weekend. Whatever. Okay. Fine. But just to sort of, like, tie these things together, there is a sort of weird thing going on with Gary Oldman. Now, again, Gary Oldman first started working with Nolan in the Batman movies. He plays Commissioner Gordon in the three of them. He hasn't actually been in any of his other movies. But here's the weird thing. In 2017... For some reason, even though it wasn't like the 70th or 75th anniversary of it, Dunkirk was hot. There was basically a, a British comedy I won't bother going into where Dunkirk's going on in the background. So that came out in 2017, but then Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan came out in 2017. And also Darkest Hour, which really concentrates on the first few months of Winston Churchill's premiership as Prime Minister came out in 2017. Now, the interesting thing about Dunkirk, the Christopher Nolan version, is, as always, Nolan is not going to do just the regular story. Now that he's fully in control, he moves things around and manipulates them. He didn't really do that in the Batman films, but even those, he sort of had his own imprint on. But you get something like Tenet, where it's, you got some of the movie running backwards and stuff. But in the case of Dunkirk, He basically had the stuff on the beaches, which was happening over a week. You had the stuff with the little ships, which was happening over a day. And you had stuff with the spitfires, which was happening over an hour. So some of these bits sort of interact with each other as you're going through it. So you sort of get to see tiny whiny things and sort of like sometimes you're seeing stuff out of order. Really clever. Makes something a bit different. But deliberately, in a usual war film you've got, like, stuff happening on the battlefield, and then it goes back to headquarters, or you get to see the generals or the prime ministers or Hitler's with a big map. Well, we need to move here and we need to do this. At no point and deliberately, Nolan doesn't do that. We actually get the speech by Churchill being read out by one of the soldiers in a kind of sarcastic, tired tone, not in an inspirational tone. Why do I say all of this? Because Darkest Hour... You don't get to see Dunkirk at all. Instead, you hear about it, and you hear the reactions, you see the reactions in Whitehall and stuff like that as Churchill realises things are going badly wrong. And so you've got Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill, which wins him a Best Actor Oscar in 2017, and as I have said previously, I'm not quite sure how or when, but I did say somewhere out there, there is kind of like a fan edit, editing together Dunkirk, most of dunkirk not necessarily all of dunkirk but also with key scenes from darkest hour and that would work as its own movie because they're talking about the same scenes and it is a bit more of a traditional war film if you were to do that but the reason why it's a bit of a quirk is gary oldman wasn't in dunkirk but he was on the other one about dunkirk in the same year but in this one he's playing harry truman the president of the united states so you could get in theory you could get Gary Oldman in a split screen playing Harry Truman and Winston Churchill because these two people were obviously contemporary with each other. I just I just love that kind of weird, freakish fact going on there. But again, like Dunkirk, Oppenheimer, there's a huge amount of buzz around it, but because it's about an actual person, it's not like the plot can't be worked out. We basically know what happened with Robert Oppenheimer because it's a matter of record for history. And it is fascinating, the Manhattan Project. I'll obviously get into all of that stuff when we get into the history bit later. But at the moment, I'm fanboying over Nolan, okay? The point is that I find it really interesting. I'm going to quickly go through his entire filmography. So basically, yes, there's indie student film. I'm not going to talk about that one. Instead, Memento. Memento is the first thing people were aware of, starring Guy Pearce. And basically... It's a pretty tight thriller and if it was just normal it would have been well respected and people wouldn't have talked about it but nolan being nolan and fiddling around with time and space and all that kind of stuff and even though he had a micro budget to make this movie he does a movie about a man who is unable to form short-term memories he's got a kind of amnesia and so how does he get us to feel like that man The whole movie is run backwards. Not like literally... Or anything like that. No, not at all. But what I mean is you get the first scene in the film is the last scene of the story. So somebody dies. Okay, well, that was a shocking way to start the film. And then we start tracking back. So you can start working out, did the right person die? Why did they die? It is ingenious. And there is, on the DVD, a way to play it the other way round. And everybody who's watched it that way, I haven't, has said, don't bother. Because you realise it's a solid but uninspiring thriller. It works best with the fundamental gimmick. But it was like his calling card. Look what I can do. Look how imaginative that is. Nobody has done this before. And trying to come up with something new is really hard in Hollywood. Nolan, by the way, background sort of like American-British. He spent lots of years in both of them. He talks with a British accent. So therefore he's kind of like, he's not just got American sensibilities. And when people talk about Hollywood, it it amazes me how many people there aren't born and bred Californians, or even born and bred Americans. And so it does give a chance for people to have slightly different views, and you don't get the same old stuff. Although it can get homogenous when you start making 10 Fast and Furious movies. I digress. So, first one's Memento. Second one is Insomnia. This is, at time of recording, the only one that's a specific remake of another movie. It's a sort of Scandinavian thriller again. This time round, rather than being set in Scandinavia, it's set in Alaska, and it's basically about Al Pacino, a cop who makes a terrible mistake and has finds it really hard to fall asleep. There's, like, constant daylight because they're so far north, and so he's just slowly losing his mind. It's a really clever, sweaty thriller where you get robin williams robin williams has played two amazing villains in his career sadly taken from us too soon one hour photo is one of them and the other one is this one you and i share a secret we know how easy it is to kill somebody insomnia he is great in it and when he is playing off against al pacino they're two just amazing actors simple as that it's a it's a great movie again It's not huge, it's not massive, it's not going to change your life or anything like that. And again, I remember watching that in the cinema after seeing Memento going, wow, that's amazing. And then I heard he's making another one. It's like, I want to see it. And the opening of the plane going over the glaciers with all the crevasses in them, it's just so cinematic, which is like, oh, he's got a slightly bigger budget now. And then he was given the opportunity to make Batman and he said that he wanted to make things kind of realistic with Batman. And... But what I find interesting is in Batman Begins, there's quite a lot of Glacier work again. Clearly, he likes ice and stuff like that. So he makes that, and then, obviously, he likes Christian Bale because he works with Christian Bale in the interim. It is interesting, the interval movies in between the three Batman movies, which are obviously more personal to him, what I find interesting is he uses quite a lot of the same actors and interacts with them. So it's almost like some of them are almost auditioning for their roles in other movies that Christopher Nolan's got in mind with them. So in this time, it's The Prestige, and funnily enough, you've got Michael Caine in it, and you've got Christian Bale in it, but you've also got Hugh Jackman in it, who's clearly having the time of his life not playing Wolverine. And it's just a great magic movie, which has a great twist. Now, annoyingly, my sister-in-law, gave away the twist before I went to see the film. Now, I'm not going to say what the twist is in case you don't know what it is. Are you watching closely? Even if you know the twist, it's still a good movie, but it's even better if you don't know where it's going, if you like, and it's got David Bowie in it. It's just a great film. It's not his best, but I really like it. Then we've got The Dark Knight. Everyone loves that. Then we got Inception, which I'm going to just put my hand up here and say, actually, my favourite Christopher Nolan movie. I just think, everything's absolutely on fire in a good way by the way then we've got dark knight rises which isn't the best of the three of them but i still think is an incredibly impressive movie then we've got interstellar which is my youngest son's all-time favorite movie i really like it i think it's got some amazing moments in it matthew mcconaughey it's a very emotional movie but It doesn't quite work for me. And there are several moments which just I find annoying, particularly at the end when he, or towards the end, when he finally catches up, if you like, in space and time with Scout, his daughter, and they just decided to film it with him and her, surrounded by her extended family, which is his extended family, and everybody's completely ignored. It's like, just don't have them in the room. It's weird that they don't want to talk to granddad. Or he doesn't want to talk to his great nieces and nephews and granddaughters and grandsons and stuff like that. Just don't have them in the room because the question is now, why are you ignoring all of your family? So anyway, that's a whole different thing. But yes, lots of people love it. I love the music in it, the huge organ music. That I love the way Hans Zimmer say, I wanted to get away from strings. People use strings so much or synthesized in sci-fi movies. He goes, I wanted to use an organ because organs at the time were the most technologically advanced musical instrument and one of the most complex machines humans had built thus far. And therefore, in a way, it's high tech showing respect high tech of interstellar genius idea love that then we've got dunkirk and again just to Hans zimmer there's incredibly tense music in it and there are certain moments where it just sounds like the music is going up and up and up in scales which is impossible if it truly kept going up it would go beyond our range of hearing so it's actually called a shepherd tone And you've heard of an optical illusion where, you know, a picture could be two things at the same time. This is an audio illusion where it's tricking your ears to think that it keeps going up and up and up, but actually it resets itself. Hans Zimmer is being beautifully inspired by Nolan, who loves people to try things out. And then we've got Tenet. Tenet is... it's a hard one to love. I think, you know, it's the most Nolan movie around there. The set pieces are spectacular. Everything is immaculate, it is a very clever idea, it's a little too clever for its own good. Sorry about that. And now we come to Oppenheimer. And so it's interesting, Kenneth Branagh is in Oppenheimer, but he was also the bad guy in Tenet, and he was also... In Dunkirk, you've got Tom Hardy who starts off in Inception, then he's Bane, then he's a fighter pilot in Dunkirk. So you you, you know he's this all this lots of love and sort of like similar people being in this stuff. I just love his stuff. If you like, it's the exact opposite of the Fast and Furious movies. Look, I don't mind big dumb fun, but if it's almost like I'm going to insult you, I'm going to assume you're a moron that can't follow basic plot. No, I think you're smarter than that. So I think the great thing about Nolan is he trusts you're smart enough to follow him and he will be intelligent, but also things blow up and there are car chases too. It sort of works quite well. Now, I feel obliged to say there are zero car chases in Oppenheimer. And yes, things do blow up, but they're very serious things and very important things, which we're going to come on to the proper history stuff in a moment i also felt obliged i just randomly said emily blunt there emily blunt plays kitty who is his wife and emily blunt killian murphy these are two beautiful people who act really well together i've previously said in the english emily blunt you know i just have huge respect for it's just great and i've said forest Pugh as well it's just great to see all of these great actors doing great work in a genuinely intelligent historical drama and I did it. I did this one in 1917, but I said, who makes big-budget historical movies and makes money from them nowadays? Well, the answer is, it seems, only Christopher Nolan. It worked with Dunkirk. We'll see how long Oppenheimer lasts in the cinemas, but I seriously hope that Oppenheimer does make big money because it's a reminder to studios, look, A, not all historical dramas have... To- you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host to have like nights in it and B. Be- Yeah, intelligent movies can sometimes be given big budgets and actually make money. So please give us more intelligent movies, thank you very much. But actually with some ambition, rather than just a million-dollar, very clever indie, you know, where everybody's just talking in a box or a cupboard for an entire movie. Well done, very clever, but I'd like a little bit more cinema going on. So there we go. Now, let's get in to the actual history. Just before we do, as always, I'm going to say, hey, look, Please click subscribe. Please give us a review on whatever app you're listening to. Thank you very much. It, it just helps spread the word. Also, this is an opportunity to say, I'm at Gem to do on Twitter. What did you think of the movie? What did you think of the Barbie movie? Maybe by then, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been to see the Barbie movie and I'll tell you what I thought of it or whatever. And also, it's to say, look, we do two of these a week. I'd love to get your thoughts on what I've done. But if you've got requests, would love to hear those as well. Thank you very much. And obviously on Twitter, I sort of like tweet out, hey, this is the one that's come out to today kind of thing. All right, fine. Let's move on. So, Julius Robert Oppenheimer, born in New York City in 1904. That is his proper name. He didn't like being called Julius, so Robert Oppenheimer is what he's actually known as. But here's the thing. I may mention in passing, born in 1904. He was by World War Two considered one of the greatest physicists in America, and so he was in his 30s when he started getting involved in what became known as the Manhattan Project. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on this, he basically got his degree in Harvard, you know, that's one of the best universities in the world, and then went on to do his doctorate, in Cambridge that's one of the best universities in the world and then on to the University of Göttingen which you might be going hang on that's not one of the best universities in the world it is a very fine university for the record why did he end up going to Germany and the answer is because of all of the European genius physicists and so this is the point where I can say There are many reasons to hate the Nazis but also show the flaw in things like Aryan supremacy or any kind of pick-a-race supremacy. Because what you see again and again in things like universities is no race has a monopoly on intelligence or inquisitiveness. What's great is if you get really smart minds from all over the world, stick them in the same room and they're all experts on the same subject, something special happens but if you're going to do your racial politics and say i don't like these sorts of people and you start kicking out some of the smartest some of the bleeding edge type people on an area that you later on might want to weaponize don't be surprised if you've fallen behind because and obviously the nazis were never going to do this because the whole point of the nazis was this sort of completely flawed racial supremacy thing had they kept all of their German-Jewish physicists, they would have got to the bomb first. And, you know, Niles Bohr and people like that, you know, these were really important people. Sometimes they were sort of Scandinavian as well, but, you know, places like Denmark and Norway were taken over by the Germans in World War II. Sweden remained neutral. We want to know more about that? Listen to my episode on Waterloo. No, honestly, really, it's, it's good and it is linked to this, strangely. So, had the nazis started developing the bomb in let's say 1933 the year hitler came to power and and jews could still sort of operate in germany they might well have got there first but they didn't and then when they started doing it the race was on who was going to come up with it first the germans who were already streets ahead with the likes of rocketry with the v1 and the v2 imagine if you could get a v2 A piece of equipment so advanced that if they were able to then put a nuclear bomb on it, it literally couldn't be shot out of the sky. It would just launch and land and dead. No more London. Something like that. Whereas, at least with the Americans, they had to be flown in on propeller airplanes, which could, in theory, be intercepted by anti aircraft fire or fighter planes, etc. So, in theory, you could have still had a chance, although by summer of 1945, Japan's Air Force had been annihilated. But you get my point. So you can understand how anxious everybody was in America about what's going to happen in Germany. And indeed it led to this myth, this myth that these German scientists did indeed crack nuclear fission but decided to bury it because they felt that they couldn't give a weapon so powerful to Hitler. It is a wonderful idea, a wonderful story about how scientists understand the moral implications of scientific discovery unfortunately it's not true because the British bugged the rooms of some of these German scientists after the war and listened to them and basically asked them to describe how they would make it and they changed the numbers they didn't realize what is actually a nuclear explosion okay the answer is it's electrons firing off from a piece of radioactive material. What makes something radioactive? It's all the electrons flying off this extremely large atom. And if you can split an atom, if you can separate those forces, that's sheer power of splitting an atom that can lead to an atomic explosion, a nuclear explosion, I should say. Because... Just one atom splitting isn't enough energy, you need a chain reaction, and they got their numbers wrong, and they thought they needed about 100 times the amount of visible material than you actually needed, and therefore when they worked out, well, we need that much uranium before it go bang, it's like, well, we'll never develop that anytime soon, so let's put all our effort into developing rocketry and, and so on and so forth. So fortunately for the rest of the world, the German scientists got their maths wrong. But meanwhile, in America, we get the start of the Manhattan Project. Now, I feel obliged to say this because America isn't the only place that had scientists, okay? Already, in Britain, we actually had the first splitting of the atom happened in Britain, which is why I'm saying it's not the same thing as a nuclear explosion, because otherwise, you know, southern England might have been blown to pieces. But I digress. Britain had its own... Physicists and actually the Manhattan Project, while well, yes, it was in America, or well, yes, the majority of the staff and scientists were American. There were Brits there, there were Canadians there, there was contributions from other Allied countries. So just to put this into a little bit of context, at its peak, it was costing two billion dollars in 1940s money a year. And at its peak, 130,000 people were working just on this project. To put that number into modern dollars, that's about 25 billion a year. The Manhattan Project is widely considered the most expensive and people-intensive project in human history. But then again, we were trying to harness the power of nuclear fission and nobody had ever done that before and it was going to involve science that had only just been discovered and trying to work out exactly what the implications would be absolutely mind-blowing there is a wonderful moment in the movie and indeed it's in the trailer when basically so just to explain obviously this was a military project so it therefore needed somebody in charge militarily and that was general leslie groves who is played in the movie by matt damon And basically, Groves is having a conversation with Oppenheimer, saying... Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? And he goes, there is not a zero percent chance of that. Now, what a scientist means is, there is almost no such thing as certainty in science, but it is highly, 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 highly unlikely. However, there is still a tiny, tiny chance that we're about to blow up the planet. That's not a good thing to hear. No matter how minuscule the chance, there's still a chance. And nobody in the whole of history has pushed that button before. And so what happens is there is this test in America to see, does this even work? Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And then, of course, it has now gone down in history that the only two nuclear detonations against a population during wartime were first of all Hiroshima and then secondly Nagasaki so that's August 6th and August 9th 1945 now I have actually talked about this in the past and I don't really want to go into the whole moral implications and and so on and so forth I'm just going to say basically for the people who say we shouldn't have dropped the bomb I want to know how you're going to end the war because Japan hadn't stopped fighting by August of 1945 and it is worth reminding you Germany had surrendered in May so June July August it is 3 months later the japanese know they're fighting on their own and they ain't surrendering the reason why they're sending out airplanes called kamikaze is because the only time in history where japan was seriously under threat from invasion it was by the mongols in the 13th century and they sent two fleets separated by seven years and on both occasions those fleets were wiped out by a typhoon which became known as a divine wind and you know what divine wind is in japanese it's kamikaze so this time around in 1945 the japanese were trying to create if you like a man-made divine wind by crashing airplanes into aircraft carriers and it was working the americans were suffering horrific casualties and yet They'd won the war. They'd basically surrounded the Japanese islands, but Japan had never been invaded in all of its long and militaristic history, so why would they believe it's going to happen now? And the other thing I'm going to say is they didn't drop the bombs on the same day. There were three days in between. It gave Japan a chance to surrender, and they still didn't after the first nuclear bomb detonated. Instead, they had to do it again, and the implication was third one's going to be Tokyo. And also, the other thing I'm going to say is Actually, more people died from the firebombing of Tokyo with conventional incendiary weapons than died from either nuclear bomb. Look, there's, there's no good news here, OK? It's that people are going to die no matter which way you, you wrap it up, but the assumption that Japan was going to surrender the next day anyway, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. So, my point here is, that once Oppenheimer had detonated it, it is critical, it's been misremembered this. He never said the quote on the day. He was interviewed years later, and he said that after seeing that detonation, it brought to mind the quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which is, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And I don't doubt that ran through his mind. That sounds like what I would be thinking after seeing the single largest detonation in human history. A detonation which creates heat Similar in temperature To the surface of the sun Which could have potentially Caused catastrophic damage To the earth's crust And here we are And you just created it Now, uh, for example, Einstein Who's got a brief cameo in the movie he, He's he been said that it was his work In the early 20th century That the Manhattan Project built upon He didn't specifically create a nuclear bomb But E equals MC squared Basically says that matter is made out of energy. You're made out of energy. It's just packed really cl- closely together. And there is a way to release that energy. And if you did, it's a lot of energy, which is basically what a nuclear detonation is. So Einstein had says subsequently that had he known where this was going, he probably wouldn't have published his work. It's very easy to say that in hindsight, but also it did help the war effort as well. And Oppenheimer and other scientists similarly were kind of wringing their hands justifying themselves after the war. What's interesting is that Oppenheimer like a lot of people he was a bit of a maverick and because of that there were a lot of socialist and communist sympathizers in America and in Europe as a whole in the 1930s and 1940s. See, at that time, we hadn't really seen the horrors of the Stalinist regime. They'd been hidden from the West. And also, it's worth reminding you that during World War II, Stalin was our ally. And, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, let's go back to him, famously said, his question was it a good idea to ally with somebody like Joseph Stalin? He goes... If the devil would be our ally, I would have something positive to say about hell. So in other words, right now, we just need all the help we can get. That's a whole other story. But back to this one, it's a point that after World War II, there was then this worry about the Red Menace. And this led to HUAC, the House of Un-American Committee. And it's also known as the McCarthy Witch Trials, because Senator Joseph McCarthy started sort of hounding people about are you now or ever been a member of the Communist Party? As if communism meant the same thing as being a Soviet spy. Now, Oppenheimer and a lot of his friends did have communist sympathies, which got them in hot water in the 1950s or late 1940s with McCarthy and Huac. But that's not the same thing that he was ever going to give these plans over to Stalin. Now, in the end, Stalin or the Soviet Union did get the details about nuclear weapons, but that was actually from... A a lady, a secretary in Britain, which we only found out in the 1990s when it was revealed through something called the Dimitrikov in archives. I'm not going to go there, but it didn't come from any of these people who are being threatened by these committees in America, and it did mean by 1949. Now the Soviet Union has their own nuclear weapon, and now for the first time in history, we've kind of got a standoff where up until. 1945 you could invade another country and whoever had the biggest army would win but now with nuclear weapons that changes everything so you even get the idea in the 1950s of mad mutually assured destruction if i've got a bunch of nukes and you've got a bunch of nukes we can't go to war because we will annihilate each other so we will remain in an uneasy peace this is why it's referred to as the cold war because you wouldn't want it to go hot. And what happened is that both sides ended up backing various forces in various nasty little civil wars to basically fight for supremacy and ideology by proxy. And today, in 2023, this is still a consideration. I've mentioned this often in various different episodes about Ukraine, and I said that there was a very right-wing guy who I pretty much disagree with everything they've ever said, But they made a comment in 2022, after things had gone disastrously wrong for Russia, when he said, we used to think that Russia had a world-class army. Now it turns out it's just a gas station with nukes. And that's the thing. This is why the West has not just instantly given Ukraine everything they wanted or said, do what you want. And hell, why not just invade the edges of Russia as well to show them that they should never try this again? There is absolutely an anxiety that if we push too hard, if Putin feels too threatened, push the button. This could start a nuclear war. Now, for the and, and Putin has indeed at times threatened such things. However, he also knows about mutually assured destruction, and he also knows that the West ultimately has been winning and would do better in these situations than Russia would. And also, the thing you get something like Finland that's just joined NATO. Finland is considered an uninvadable country. Why? Because part of the law is that you have to have enough space in nuclear bunkers in all of the city centres and even out into the countryside to ensure that in the event of a nuclear war, actually the people of Finland will be safe. So I guess if there was a nuclear war, the one country that's going to win is Finland, and I guess ultimately we have Robert Oppenheimer to thank for that. But finally, I'm going to finish on something a bit more upbeat than, than all mutually assured destruction, the other thing I was going to say is, interestingly, the Manhattan Project wasn't just involved in doing that. I mean, 90% of that $2 billion a year was trying to create factories to create fissable material. In other words, the actual uranium to be used in the nuclear weapons. But also their job was to try and gather intelligence on what was going on with the German nuclear program as well. So they had, there was a spy element to it as well. But there is something else to do this because (laughs) bear with me on this one so in 1946 Jacques Heim decided to create for the first time ever a two-piece swimsuit and he called it the atom because it was the smallest swimsuit that had ever been created before but it didn't really take off meanwhile we've got The U.S. forces continuing to test larger and larger nuclear devices. Oh, this is why I was very careful how I explained Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There have been lots of nuclear detonations as countries around the world have tested their nuclear weapons. I'm just going to pause for a second when I ask you the question, how many nuclear detonations do you think there have been since Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Have a think, maybe put it on pause, pick a number. The answer is over 2,000. Yeah, there's been a lot of nukes that have been let off. But the Americans in particular, who had now occupied the Marshall Islands in the Pacific, there was one quite useful one, which was almost like a square of coral reef. So it was perfect to view from every possible angle and see the actual destructive effects of this. And this was called Bikini Atoll. Yes, Bikini Bottom from the the world of SpongeBob SquarePants. You know, there is a theory that he is a radioactive result of these tests. But going back to Jacques Haim with his very small swimsuit that didn't really take off which was called the atom instead instead louis who's also french created something even smaller two-piece and named it in honor because the first one was called atom how can i say something associated with atoms and that's where we get the word bikini from so yes thanks to robert oppenheimer women today can get a decent tan all over (laughs) thanks to a bikini so Bet you didn't think I was going to end on women's swimsuits there. Thank you very much for listening, and as always, another episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.